Today, I'd like you to turn with me to the 22nd chapter of the book of Acts. Pastor Connie examines the complicated relationship that the early church had with the Roman and Jewish governments, and what lessons we can learn from their interactions with the public and political spheres. Let's listen together. Well, my heart is full today, and I always have a Kleenex in my, in my Bible, but I didn't have one today. So, pardon me, I need a Kleenex. And God is here. It's a good worship day for us. Praise the Lord. We needed to hear all of that. Because I feel like, you know, I'm going to just bring you down now. And it's not my fault. I just want to say this is my first time preaching in the pulpit again. Oh, thank you. See, thank you. Um... But it's the topic that I was given to preach. So, um, so I have wrestled. I have wrestled this week. Um, so I'm going to say a word, and then you're going to tell me what comes to your mind. Ready? The word is government. What? I can't hear you. Okay, I still can't. You know, these masks are making it impossible. Corrupt? Okay, something about lies? Big? Speak with four tongue. I said that to someone this morning. They said crooked politicians. Broadly speaking, we have a love-hate relationship with our government. And uh, government is supposed to bring order, organization, rules, services, support, justice, resources to the people under its care. Government is very good, except, of course, when it really isn't. The show Parks and Rec follows the employees of a parks department in a town in Indiana. And one of the funniest things about this show is the juxtaposition of Leslie Nope the director who loves, loves, loves government. She loves bureaucracy, rules, paper trails, the most mind-numbing aspects of government. She loves it. And she is set against Ron Swanson, who works for the government. The government pays his check, but he hates every aspect of government. And at one point, he used a circular desk, which was designed to pay better attention to everybody but he used it instead to avoid the citizens who are coming into his department for help. So look at this. Excuse me. There's a sign at Rampsit Park that says, do not drink the sprinkler water. So I made some tea with it and now I have an infection. Sir? Sir, are, 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 are you listening to me, sir? Sir, I'm talking to you. Sir, sir, are you aware that there is waste in your water system? So that's uh, government bureaucracy at its point of pain, which we have all felt. 
In real life, government has a lot of power over us, over our quality of life. And wherever we live, under whichever government system we live, we are impacted personally by the government that is over us. Our focus today is specifically on our connection as Christians to our government. We have been looking at the newborn church in the book of Acts and then in the New Testament to learn from their experiences. And today we come to the connection between Christians and their governments, a very sensitive and timely topic for Christian Americans in a very charged political time that we live. The newborn church had, in Acts had two ruling bodies to contend with. One was the religious leaders of the Jews, the elders, the priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. And the other was the military rulers over a broad swath of the world at the time, the Roman Empire, a fierce and oppressive and hated authority. And the new church was gonna run afoul of both authorities. The Jewish authorities were constantly trying to get the Roman authority to squash the church, but two can play at that game and the apostles would in turn appeal to Roman law to prove they had done nothing wrong. The apostle Paul in particular had a trump card that he used to get out of physical danger. He was a Roman citizen by birth and most Hebrew people did not have this advantage as conquered subjects of this government, Jewish people had very few rights, but Roman citizens, on the other hand, had to be treated better. So several times we run into this in the book of Acts, and late in Acts, Paul was worshiping in the temple of Jerusalem. Some Jews from Asia came over, started a riot against Paul that went to such extents that the Roman tribune and his cohort, that's 480 soldiers, had to come running from their garrison um, to squash that riot. They saved Paul's life by arresting him. The mob demanded his death. So in Acts 22, verse 23 through 29, it says, while they, the mob, were shouting, throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air. The tri tri tribune, tribune directed that Paul was to be brought into the barracks and ordered him to be examined by flogging. That's a legal technical term, examined by flogging, to try to find out the reason for this outcry against him. But when they had tied him up with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who is uncondemned? When the centurion heard that, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? This man is a Roman citizen. The tribune came and asked Paul, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, it cost me a large sum of money to get my citizenship. Paul answered, but I was born a citizen. Immediately, those who were about to examine him, i.e. whip him, drew back from him, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. So Paul had rights, and he used them. And this becomes our first principle when dealing with a government as followers of Jesus, we are to engage the system. We are to work with the governing system. 
we are to use our rights and we are to use our privilege. And if we care not only about our lives but also for our communities, for people who have less privilege, we must engage the system that has power over us. Well, you don't have to tell us twice to use our rights. The Americans are the supreme leaders of the world at knowing what their rights are and using them, so we are going to move on to another principle. The Roman rule was one thread of government that the church and Acts had to contend with, and the other, of course, was their own Jewish rulers who had a lot of say over the lives of the Jewish people. As it turns out, they became dead set against the church very quickly. And this is no surprise. This was the governing body that had used their considerable power to have Jesus killed. And they must have thought in that month after Jesus was killed, okay, that's over with, that's taken care of. And imagine their dismay when Jesus would not stay dead. His name was spoken on the streets. His followers were multiplying exponentially. So by the time of Acts 4, the rulers were exactly in the same corner that they had been before his death that they thought they had already escaped. They arrested Peter and John for proclaiming that in Jesus there is resurrection from the dead, but the apostles gave a brilliant defense to that ruling body, which could not be disputed because their prime piece of evidence was a man who had been healed, a crippled man who had been healed in the name of the living, raised Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So in verse 18 of chapter 4, the rulers called the disciples in and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in God's sight to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot keep from speaking about what we have seen and heard. And this is our second principle, uh, but it's primary in importance, where the Christian parts government with, I mean, the Christian parts company with the government. We have one supreme authority, and it is not the emperor, it is not the military, it is not the police, it is not the president. The supreme authority belongs to God. And when the two conflict, we must choose God. So here we have two principles, two opposite paths. We are to use the government and we are to oppose it. We are to work from the inside, and we are to work against it when it co conflicts with God. And so this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where things get very tricky. When do we decide which one to do? And how do we know we're doing the right thing? Because in the name of God, Christians have gone off the rails. In the name of God, they claim to be following God's higher law, but the results have sometimes been heartbreaking. In the name of God, Christians have fought wars, have tortured and killed others, both believers and non-believers, conquered native peoples, used slave labor, justified the theft of land and property. In the name of God, Christians have used the power of government for their own advantage and at the expense of others. 
in the name of God, Christians have perpetuated injustices. In the name of God, Christians have attacked their own government. On January 6th, we saw that with Christian flags and symbols prominently displayed in the storming of the Capitol building. If these two principles were all we had, we could justify a whole lot of behavior by appealing either to the one or to the other. So how do we sort out justice issues, which we Christians are passionate about, and how do we choose the right side when Christians are to be found on both sides? In reading the book of Acts, it becomes very clear that what propelled the disciples every time they came up against their own rulers was their witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Asking ourselves this question is critical to check our witness. What does my position say to others about my Savior, Jesus Christ? What do my actions say about Jesus? Why do Christians have a reputation for being mean and hateful? If Christians aren't the most humble, the most generous, the most loving, the most giving, the most sacrificial, People out there, what does that say about Jesus? We need to check our witness. One of the guiding verses in these fraught political times for me has come from James chapter 1, verse 19 through 20. You must understand this, my beloved. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to, slow to, anger, for Connie's anger does not produce God's righteousness. What? I cannot believe the Bible would single me out that way. Now, if the Bible said, for Robert's anger does not produce God's righteousness, I would perfectly understand and agree wholeheartedly. I could have told my husband that. But no, when I read the Bible, I'm reading for me, and that sentence applies to me first and foremost. Now last, <laughs> now last Sunday, Pastor George told us about the difference between righteousness and holiness. And I want to take that a step further and say that there is a line, really it's a chasm between God's righteousness and our own righteousness. And we tend to slide out of God righteousness and into self-righteousness like that without even recognizing it. I think anger is actually good. I think it tells us something is wrong and that wrong needs to change. So I think it's a good warning to us. We have anger for a good reason. But then once it's alerted us, once it's aroused us, it tends to continue to infiltrate our words and our actions. And that's where we get into trouble. That's when anger becomes poison. 
It twists our motivations. It causes us to lash out. It causes us to justify our ugliness. And when we are angry, we feel like we're channeling God's wrath and judgment, right? Righteously channeling the wrath of God, but we are not God and our judgments are not God's judgments. Our anger does not produce God's righteousness, so please, we need to check our anger. The book of Acts is primarily a story of how the church, driven by the Holy Spirit, went from a Jews-only club to span all cultures, all geographic and ethnic lines, all languages, all people. And this changed the DNA of the followers of Jesus forever. There were no bigger nationalists than the Jews who had two words for people. You were either Jews or you were everybody else, everybody out, they're Gentiles, out. Jews are in. Well, except for Americans. We have found that there is a huge amount of Americans who are very, very nationalist. So there we have that. And the Argentines, the Argentines are so nationalist sometimes. And, um, and the Mexicans, well, those are all the cultures that are, I've lived in. And let me tell you, there are nationalists in every single one of those cultures. Uh, strident nationalists who say my country comes first, who identify with their own country, who vigorously support their own country, but at the exclusion and detriment to the interests of other nations. And what changed in the new church is that Christians are no longer allowed to be nationalists, to put our interests above everybody else's interests. We are now bonded to our brothers and sisters in Christ. We have blood siblings through the blood of Jesus Christ, which is a far stronger bond than genetics or biology. And this means that I have more in common with and more invested in, for example, an undocumented Christian immigrant in my country than my perfectly American, culturally similar, middle-class, non-believing neighbor. I care about my brothers and sisters. It means we leave no one behind. I love and go to bat for my siblings in the Lord, no matter where they live in the world, no matter if we cannot communicate in a common language, no matter if their ways of thinking are foreign to me. My heart is open to them. I am family bonded to them through our Heavenly Father. And so my interest must also be strained through this grid of my very large Heavenly Family so that I can weed out my own self-interest, my own dominance, my own selfishness. Philippians 3.20 says our citizenship is in heaven. And it is from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, so we need to check our citizenship. Years ago, my daughter Lauren was getting ready for college and I was filling out those FAFSA forms, which stands for Free Application for Federal Student Aid. This is money that the government gives you if you qualify to help 
with the expenses of a college um, degree. And someone asked me, well, what about the DACA kids, those born in another country brought to California as children, would I want them to have the same rights to that financial assistance as I have to that? There's only so much money to go around and the pie gets smaller if more people are eligible. Lauren would potentially receive less if they were included. Now, we were struggling financially at that time. We were in a period of unemployment at that time. We had no idea how we were going to pay for higher education. And so that money was really, really important to us. And I thought about that pie and I thought, well, if you say it that way, that pie starts to look smaller by the minute. And I could feel my heart shrinking. But then I thought about my loving Heavenly Father who has unlimited resources. And I was able to affirm with my whole heart that I think that children who grew up here who know no other home should have the same advantages as my children. When I check my citizenship in heaven, my security expands so greatly that I don't have to, to hold on so tightly. I don't have to fear because God is going to take care of us. It was always going to be God who was going to get those girls through their college. It wasn't going to be on us. He's so much bigger and a better safety net than FAFSA. The paradigm shifted with the new church. We have actually been talking about this for weeks and have tried to express how big that change was. The whole paradigm shifted with the new church, with the ethnic uh, um, embrace of people who are outside of the narrow Jewish line. The disciples expected, and I'm thinking probably right up to the crucifixion, that Jesus would liberate them politically from Rome. He could have. People would have followed him. He could have called an army of angels to come down and help him against this oppressive government. And yet Jesus did not involve himself in politics. You ever notice that? It bothered me. I was like, come on, get out there, Jesus. There's some wrongs that have to be righted. And I wonder if it bothered the disciples or if they expected it, well, you know, it's going to come. He's just kind of gathering steam and it's going to come. But then he was killed. And then immediately after the resurrection, the disciples had to change their assumptions. It wasn't about a government on earth at all. Instead, what was it? Jesus was always talking about the kingdom of God instead of earthly rule. Why did God choose to make an end run around government? Well, it hadn't really worked out well in the Old Testament. God gave the people of Israel every chance to be ruled directly by God, and they showed that they really didn't want God as their political leader. They struggled to follow him when he couldn't have been more direct. 
And historically, when Christians have held political power, it's often gone sideways. We have had governments that have been in favor of Christians. Starting in the year 300 something with Constantinople and all the way through history, other governments. And we've had governments that have been very much against Christians, very oppressive. And if you read history, when power is on our side, the church has not come out well. I remember talking to a priest, the pastor of Sacred Heart Roman Catholic Church right here in Altadena, at the time when the scandal of the molester priests was in the news, remember that? It was every week, it was priests all over the world. And I asked him about it, and I'll never forget his answer. He said, we, meaning the Roman Catholic Church, have been the church triumphant for too long. We have a lot of money. We have a lot of property. We have a lot of prestige. We have a lot to lose. And we have put those interests above the interests of the victims. And it's time for us to be the humble church. Power corrupts. And when the church has power, it doesn't govern itself very well. And when the church cozies up to the state, the church loses its supernatural vitality that we have been talking about. Over and over, history tells this story. On the other hand, when the church, when the state opposes the church, the church is passionate, more alive, more dependent on Jesus. The persecuted church is often in a better spiritual state than the state church, where everything is going fine. Well, power does indeed corrupt, so we would do well to check our humility. God actually does have a side. God is always on the side of the poor, the widow, the fatherless, the outcasts of society. God cares about people who don't have rights. He cares about the oppressed and the brokenhearted. He cares about the victims. God is on the side of the powerless, and he cares about injustice done to them. And look at Jesus, look at the harsh things he said to religious people who were in power, who had all the power. And I don't know about you, but I wanna be on God's side. So I must check my humility to make sure it's real and not just talk. And the final check for us the one that wraps it all together is that we are to live for the kingdom of God and not for a human kingdom. Strive first, Jesus said, for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Christians are not the same as other people when it comes to government, at least we shouldn't be. We have Jesus. We call him king, even though he is, oh, so much not like the kings that we know, that we've known. We could call him president, that's the top power in our governing system. Even though he is so much not like a president. 
He will bring justice. He will make things right. Human powers can't come close. We must engage with the governments of this world. But where do we take a break? Where do we find relief? Where do we refuel and recharge? Where do we correct course? The Prince of Peace is right here in our midst. Let's turn to him now. Will you bow your heads with me? Lord, you know how we churn inside when we engage with our broken beyond repair government. Give us your heart and eyes. Give us your deep, deep love for people who are flawed. Give us your righteousness to grieve over what is wrong and to long and to work for what is right. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In your name we pray. Amen. We meet in Altadena every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Pacific, both in the sanctuary and on YouTube. Most other events will be starting up soon, but if you need prayer now, please reach out to us at altabapprayer at aol.com. And again, as always, we pray God's blessings on you this week.